Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Um, Tyler, great to be able to catch up with you and, um, and get your views, get your thoughts here, particularly in the small cap world, which is your key area of focus. It's an area that I don't think um, enough investors probably know enough about, just given the fact that there are a lot of opportunities and probably missed opportunities. So um, maybe just give us kind of the, the one liner in terms of, um, you know, maybe why small cap uh, companies are an important area to consider from an investment perspective. For sure. So I think I actually think that Canadian small cap is probably one of the last inefficient areas left in developed markets. And there's a few reasons for that. I mean, for one, um, the benchmark is, is, is not really representative of, of, the, um, of the investment space. It's got a fixed upper limit, which means like as the market as a whole grows over time, the, the benchmark for the small cap universe ends up becoming like smaller compared to the rest of the market. So there's that. Uh, it's fairly concentrated in resource companies, which in, unless you're in a, a resource bull market, secular bull market, don't tend to be great performers as companies or stocks. So, so you've got kind of a concentration problem in, a, in an area of the market that, that traditionally hasn't added a lot of value. And so you look at that when you get like asset allocators that end up looking at the Canadian small cap space, you see low returns and a lot of volatility, right? Which is not like a, not a great way for, that's not how people usually like to make money. Underneath that, like if you take the difference between that and the large cap space, which in Canada is pretty narrow, right? It's, it's, there's not a lot, of, it's not the US where you have, where you have thousands, hundreds of kind of large cap companies. It's a pretty narrow space. So you've got this, this area kind of small cap and, and mid cap, if you will, that is below the really big companies in Canada where, where you can, there's not a lot of eyes on it. So you can end up finding great companies that can grow uh, for really long periods of time uh, before they kind of get on, um, on, on the radar of like your average investor. Got it. Um, when we think about small cap in Canada, because it is just so different versus the United States in terms of the size of these companies and even some of the momentum and flow, the, the money flow behind them, um, what are you looking for uh, with respect to investing in small cap companies? Like, is there a range um, that you think about in terms of the price and the market cap size? So un unlike the benchmark, we, we use a floating, we use floating numbers. So they float with the overall TSX composite, just to make sure that it's still like a relevant metric from a benchmark perspective. So on the low end, we kind of cut it at about 100. But on the upper end, we keep it to about 0.2 it has to be when we make a new investment it has to be under 0.2% of the TSX composite. So right now that's somewhere around five and a half billion. That's kind of how we define our universe. We, we don't have forced sales, but we do have average weighted market cap restrictions that ensure we don't hold banks or, or really big companies. Typically, the great majority of our investments are, are under that 0.2% um, of the TSX composite. 
Got it. Um, and, you know, you, you talked just briefly there about forced sales. And I thought that this was pretty interesting or really interesting um, as it relates to your sell discipline, because I personally even find this hard. And, and you hear a lot of money managers to say, OK, well, the stock gets up to more than 5% of my over, overall portfolio or even 3%, I'm going to trim. But that is not your approach. And I think this is really important because it's so difficult uh, it's one thing to get the buy side right. And then the sell side is difficult. So how do you make a decision to sell? It's pretty easy. I mean, there's a few different a few different ways we look at it. For diversification purposes, we typically keep our upper limit on, on weights to 5%. So we will typically hold our highest conviction names in like a 3 to 5% market cap, or sorry, 3 to 5% of the portfolio. Um, so if it goes over 5%, that's one reason. But what we're trying to do, like we, we're long-term investors. We don't invest in anything unless we think we can be there for five years. So um, it's okay for stocks to go up a lot and to go up a lot every year. That's what we're going for. So we don't sell something just because it hits a target price. Typically, when we exit a position, it's because something's gone wrong. Um, it's, either, um, it, it, it's either there's been a change in strategy or it hasn't worked out the way we planned. And when we recognize that, like we have very specific criteria that we're looking for. If those criteria no longer exist, if, if the company no longer meets it, it's just time to get out. Because in small cap, uh, things can go very wrong very, very quickly. And that you don't have the floor that you might with large cap companies. Um, you know, we have not had any stocks that I can think of or many stocks go, go to zero, but it's a possibility they can get there. So as soon as you recognize that the stock is not what you're looking for, we just get out or we start a plan to get out because, and we do that regardless of like how long we've owned it or how well it's done since we've owned it or, or how cheap it might be. Because again, like there's, there's not a lot of floor to some of these names when things go badly and it's best just to move on. There are lots of great ideas out there. So we'd rather just move on to something else that, that meets what we're looking for. And, and Tyler, just to pick up on that point, you know, having covered some of the big hedge funds in the United States, um, they have a threshold in terms of if a stock is down a certain percentage point, they are out. They might revisit it. They might get back in. But if it drops a certain percent, they're out. Do you have that as well within small cap, just given what you've said or no? We don't. We take a very, very fundamental approach. So we certainly take a look. Like sometimes the market's telling you something and it's just it's beating you to it. Do you understanding what's going on fundamentally? But if we don't have a fundamental reason to sell, then we won't. Got it. Um, let's, uh, we're going to talk about your, the themes that you're looking at right now in terms of um, reopening and, and long-term trades or long-term investments, secular tailwinds, et cetera. But before we get to that, recognizing, having said that, that you are bottoms up, um, there's a lot going on from a macro perspective in terms of inflation and the Fed and supply chain issues, um, on and on. So um, just from a macro perspective, anything you want to add there that you're thinking about right now or that you think is so critical to your investment process? So we take, we, I would say instead of looking for themes, there are themes that come out of your fundamental process. So we, you know, that's part of the diversification of the portfolio, less than um, we think inflation is going to be an issue. Let's go looking for companies that, that meet that. Again, it, it's more, that ends up becoming more of a diversification tool than a, let's go look for this. So, um, so from that perspective, all the companies we're, we're looking for are companies, again, that we think can grow at above market rates for long periods of time. Again, a minimum of five years is how we look at it. And they have different, there are different characteristics. There are different themes that those fit into. Um, 
you know, some of them are higher growth tech companies. Some of them are, are growth by acquisition companies like, like Boyd, for example, we've owned for 10 years. Um, one thing that we are cognizant of right now is, is the prospect of inflation. Again, we're, we're not making big macro bets, uh, but it's something that the market hasn't had to worry about for a long time. I mean, I, the last time I can remember it even being an issue was back in 2016, and, and it didn't happen. But um, there's obviously a lot of liquidity in the system right now. Um, it's understandable that we're seeing some inflationary pressures right now, given what the world's gone through, and, and things are clearly getting better on a, on a rotating basis, right? The U.S. Was, was pretty early. Canada looks like we're going to be a little bit behind. Europe's probably even, even, even a little bit further behind that. So... Um, we're not saying we're not calling for kind of a big inflationary regime change, but we are spending a lot of time looking at our, the companies that we own and ensuring that in an inflationary environment, like we don't look at it as you want to own commodities. You want to own companies that, that have pricing power that can pass those increases through to their end customers. So we're spending a lot of time looking at that right now, particularly because it's something that, that that us and the market hasn't really had to focus on for a while. Hmm. Interesting. So Tyler, Winpack is, is one of the companies that you guys are looking at in terms of being able to pass on pricing power to the consumer. Right. Yeah. So they, we've owned the company for quite a while. I, I can't even remember how long, but it's definitely, definitely been longer than five years. But there's an example of a company where they have uh, price increases um, in their contracts with their customers. As in, for example, um, is, is one of their key input costs. When resin prices go up, they can pass it through. Sometimes it's on a lag. Uh, and we've known that about Winpack for quite a while. So we're, we're starting to look at all of our companies from that perspective. Again, not sure if inflation is going to show up post-recovery. Post like clearly there will be some catch up. There has to be. Uh, from our perspective, again, taking a look at things from a long-term basis, it's does this have legs past kind of the, the reopening. And the reopening could take a while. Like I said, it's, it's rotating through countries as they get kind of their vaccination plans in place. Mm -hmm. so, so we're kind of taking the time now just to look really deep and say who has pricing power. And again, it comes from different sectors. You can see it in the real estate sector. You can see it in, in consumer. You can see it in technology. And, and so far, I think a lot of our companies do have that. But, you know, it, it is possible that's going to have a lot more importance going forward. Interesting. Um, staying on that theme for one second, then Winpack. Uh, it's a Canadian company. I'm yeah. assuming. I don't know it. Uh, what's the ticker? What's management like? What's the market cap? What's what, what's the fundamental view here in terms of even why you bought it five years ago? So Winpack ticker is WPK. Um, it uh, we we bought it a few years ago. Uh, what they do is again they make they make packaging for food and beverage companies. So from that perspective. Uh, a pretty unsexy business when you think about it, right? But a business that their that their customers need, and you have to earn the trust of your customers in that business. Uh, what we really liked about it when we bought it, and, and they have had um, a management change. It was an internal change, but their their longtime CEO and CFO retired a few years ago. Is they were great capital allocators. So it's a huge cash flow business. So it's what can you do with that cash flow? And it, it was an example of a company that for a while. And even still, I guess, had more cash flow than they really knew what to do with. But instead of just going out and, and kind of spending on any acquisition that came along, they've taken a very thoughtful approach. It's been a company that has uh, that that has invested internally, so um, building new factories, signing long-term contracts with again food and beverage companies, uh, 
And they built this big cash kind of uh, war chest, if you will, for future acquisitions and safety. So they've got a great balance sheet, which gives the company optionality. Um, again, we don't want them to go out and, and make kind of giant acquisitions without thinking it through. We, I think we probably would have expected a, a bit more than what we've seen because they've got, again, this, this giant pile of cash and not a lot to do with it. But it's also a stock that's not going to hurt you very much uh, as well. And, and that's an important part of a portfolio, uh, especially in the small cap space when you've kind of got dependable longer term growth with optionality to it as well. And Tyler, for viewers listening and, and when they think, because everybody wants, uh, they want to own a fund with a great money manager. And they also maybe want to play on the side a little bit too, in terms of stock ideas. And that's why, you know, I want to kind of talk about these, these companies and also the fundamentals. I think that, you know, the opportunity to have a longer conversation in this format allows investors who are trying to learn about how to invest to hear how you think. And I think that that's really important. You're talking a lot about cash flow. So if we talk again about Winpack as an example, a strong balance sheet, cash flow, tons of cash. Are you looking at this company as like a steady eddy, which I can understand on, on almost the consumer staple side? Um, but also, you know, are you looking at it maybe from a dividend perspective at some point or a cash, special dividend? and or capital appreciation. How, how do you look at this? So we like to say we're dividend agnostic. We're looking for good capital allocators. Now, in general, we would say we want to own companies that, that can take cash in and do something to make their business more valuable over time. Typically, that doesn't fit with dividend companies. I, I don't mean dividend companies. Lots of our holdings have dividends, but, but companies that pay the majority of their cash flow out as dividends. We, we, have, we hold one REIT, I think, um, and, and it's more of a growth REIT. So I would say in general, like our, the yield on the portfolio is lower than what you would see, not just for the TSX composite, which, which clearly has a lot of, of large dividend pairs, but also the small cap universe as well. Um, and, and I'd say that's how we approach dividends. It's fine if they're there, but if it's too high, it's probably not what we're looking for from a long-term kind of value creation compounder either. Okay. And I should probably correct myself. I'm sure it falls under the industrial category, not consumer staples, but it plays into consumer staples. Winpack is actually technically a materials company. I mean, we think oh. of it as more industrial. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was wrong on both fronts. <laughs> uh, so part of the, the, um, the opportunity, again, is that is the small cap benchmark is not fully representative of the small cap universe. So we, again, we, we look at sector um, exposure from a diversification standpoint. But if a sector has 20% in it in the benchmark, we, we don't even start there. The, the, the sector weights that we come up with end up as a, as a residual of our bottom-up process. So when we look at, we look at, like to your point, Catherine, we look at WinPAC as being kind of a, an industrials type company with a consumer end market. And, and that's how we think about exposures. Who, who are your end customers? What kind of, what kind of uh, customers do you have? Um, how do you make money and what do you do with it? Okay, got it. Um, so Tyler, when we're thinking about, you know, consumer discretionary and the reopening trade, Aritzia is obviously front and center for you. And you say that they, they were almost ahead of the game a little bit in terms of having a strong online presence. Yeah, for sure. So they they obviously, like any good retailer, they've been looking to move more of their business online because that's where the market's going. Uh, so they were already along that path. The pandemic hit. And I, I wouldn't say it was easy. I'm sure they would take exception to me saying it was easy. But from an investor's perspective, it seemed like it was much easier for them to pivot. 
Um, I think it was in the last quarter, their online sales ended up being up about 80% year over year, which, which is an amazing number. And now when you look at Aritzia, you have, uh, they're still mostly Canada right now, although the big opportunity for them is in the US. It's a brand that's resonating in the US uh, already. So they've taken a very methodical approach to, to opening their stores instead of just kind of throwing stores open. They've taken a very kind of cautious approach. So now you've got the U.S. is open for the most part. I think we're, we're almost there in Canada. And, uh, and then you've got the long story, the long-term growth story, which we invested in initially anyway, which is that uh, over the next 10 years, we think there are lots and lots of stores that they can open in the U.S. and, and just continue that growth story. So Tyler, just to pick up on, on a couple of those points, um, one is that they have a strong brand. It is resonating with the consumer. I have bought there many times, um, going back for years, actually. I think they are geared towards a younger demographic than me. Um, but but what is, who is their target audience? I think it is a younger demographic, but I, I don't think it is, it is very narrow, right? Um, uh, by the way, today they made an acquisition that, that, that put them into men's, uh, fashions as well. So, um, maybe I will have something to buy now instead of Lululemon, <laughs> which I think is everything I'm wearing right now at home. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think it's actually pretty broad. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in my early forties and, and, and my wife and a lot of her friends still shop there, uh, quite a bit. Uh, they definitely resonate with the young working, uh, young office workers as well. So I don't think it's like super narrow. And, and I think that's where consumer companies can get themselves into trouble. It's too narrow of a market. It's too much of a fad. And then, and then um, consumers move on to something else. I think they've got enough of the uh, enough size of the market that it's pretty steady. And, and they've just had the secret sauce of keeping their, their look fresh and, and interesting to their target, uh, to their target consumers as well. Um, yeah, Tyler, it really seems as though uh, Aritzia does have that special sauce as it relates to their product offering, uh, keeping it fresh, keeping it interesting, but it doesn't appear to have too much fashion risk. It's almost like basics plus a little bit of an edge that resonates. It just seems to work. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's a good place to be in consumer because if it's too specific, if it's catching too much of a fad, like we've seen it, right? People move on to something else. So I, I think they're in, in a great sweet spot where it's 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 enough of a broad appeal. Um, they have been able to keep up uh, from a fashion forward sense. They, they have had uh, good brand spokesmen or good brand people, I guess, to, to, yeah. to uh, that resonate with consumers. And, and they've had a good model and, and I think they've got a, they've got a visionary leader, but he's brought in really great people around him as well. Again, we've been invested since the IPO and, uh, and, and you can really see the company setting themselves up for something that is sustainable, which is really hard in, in the fashion industry. There's even the Canadian landscape is littered with companies that, that were hot for a little while. And now we just don't hear about it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we think about the opportunity in the United States in terms of how many stores they can open, uh, you know, that's a big debate and conversation these days in terms of what will be the actual demand. So what's company management saying about that opportunity? Have they ratcheted it back at all or and what kind of what kind of malls do they want to be in? 
Well, I mean, I think to start, like in Canada, they're in they're in a lot of different places, right? Like they're in they're in suburban and in the US right now, they're mostly focused on on kind of big urban fashion forward areas, Los Angeles, New York. I think that there's no reason that the long-term opportunity can't be similar in the US as it, as it is in Canada. Again, it's already um, it, it's already a brand that resonates with those consumers. Now it's just making it available in in kind of a in a thoughtful way. Mm-hmm. So, um, when, sorry, at Canada being, I forget the exact split on store numbers right now, but it's heavy, heavy Canada, and the U.S. population is is ten times Canada at least. So you think about that runway; it, it's already like skewed heavily in terms of Canada, whereas the split between the two countries is heavily skewed the other way. That's what we like to see. This is a, this is uh, they've got a growth runway that could go on for a long, long time. What what's their valuation looking like? I mean, for a consumer company, it's uh, it's fairly high. For when you compare it to just any company that has the kind of free cash flow they have and the growth opportunity, we actually think it's pretty attractive. Okay, um, shifting focus here a little bit to another name. Um, you know, we and we think about secular tailwinds, or we think about e-commerce plays, or or what have you. Cargo jet. <laughs> What, who, who knew? We obviously you knew, but you well, probably owned it for a while or what? Yeah, we've owned Cargo Jet. I want to say for about five years. Um, it took us a while to warm up to it. Uh, we looked at it originally as an airline, which technically it is, but it's really unique as an airline. I mean, it's almost got an, a, a monopoly when you think about um, their position in the market from a, uh, for air cargo for e-commerce. Uh, they've got big customers, Amazon, for example, um, and and price is not the only thing that's important to these customers, right? Getting the product on time uh, consistently is just as important, if not pricing. So they've, again, I, I forget which company we were talking about before, but I was saying they've earned their customers' trust. This is a company that's earned their customers' trust. And and once you have that, there's no there's no advantage for an Amazon, for example, to go out with someone else. There's no point. It's working really well. In fact, Amazon put an equity investment into the company. Um, I forget if it, I think it was last year. So they've become more aligned. And obviously, that I mean, if you're gonna if you're going to be exposed to the e-commerce market, you, you really want to have Amazon as a partner. So again, we look at that still in Canada. Believe it or not, even 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 post COVID. Canada is still fairly early on e-commerce adoption. Uh, we look at CargoJet, believe it or not, similar to how you'd look at a rail, right? They have the infrastructure, very hard to replicate. You can't just throw money at it, but instead of two rails in Canada, you've got CargoJet that, that more or less has a monopoly in the Canadian market. And, you know, I haven't looked at this stock lately, um, but I think it's been on a tear. How do we look at the valuation? So it's actually taken a pause. So it, it was seen originally as a um, as a COVID beneficiary, which it was. Uh, obviously, e-commerce sales spiked dramatically. I, I forget the exact number, but both Amazon and and CargoJet have talked about how many years it pushed forward demand on the adoption of, of e-commerce. So it was seen as a beneficiary. You had multiple expansion. You had earnings like earnings uh, significant earnings growth, which is a great combination. And now. It has lagged over the last six months, if you will, since the vaccine announcements. It's looked at as more of a, well, it's kind of looked at like tech stocks. So they've had their run. Let's look towards more cyclical companies now. 
we look at it and we say, it's not like we don't expect their earnings to go down. We think they're going to keep going up, except that now you've had a catch up with other parts of the market. And we look at CargoJet as, as being in a better position than they were two years ago. Uh, they should see earnings growth that is amongst the, the strongest that, that, that they've had since we've owned it. And yet it's trading at a much more reasonable multiple than, than it would have been, uh, I don't know, a year ago, call it. So we actually look at a lot of stocks in that space as, as being opportunities for the next couple of years. Hmm. Okay, so the valuation shouldn't inhibit us from perhaps taking a look at it. I mean, I don't think so. Like a lot of people compare it to an airline, like they'll, they'll compare it to Air Canada. It's not Air Canada. Right. Like it's it's a totally different other than the fact that they both fly airplanes, their, their businesses couldn't be more different. So, you know, compared to to a, to a consumer carrier airline, it might look expensive. But when you look at, again, the growth potential of the company, the free cash flow of the company um, and, and their their position uh, in their industry, we actually think it's pretty reasonable for, for what you're getting. Okay. Um, staying on with the, what you just brought up in terms of some of those stocks um, that really took off, obviously tech, uh, you do own Descartes Systems. What's, yes. this, what's the story there? So Descartes Systems, we've actually owned over 10 years. Uh, and this is a company that, it, that has software in, uh, I'd call it uh, sort of not too dissimilar from a cargo jet from the markets. It's it's um, it's logistics, shipping, global trade, uh, and that includes everything from software for uh, delivery companies that, that deliver packages uh, for companies like Amazon to uh, software for freight forwarders and truckers when they're crossing borders, um, when they're they're alerting kind of regulatory authorities of what they're carrying, how much they're carrying, where they're taking it to. Uh, so this is a company that. Uh, traditionally, organic growth has been fairly low, mid-single digits, which is, is unique in software, but it's been a great cash flow story. So, And what this company has been amazing at is taking the cash flow that they get and making really, really good acquisitions that, again, just turn into more cash flow over time. And it's been a great model and, and it's worked really well for the past 10 years. And I think it has flown under the radar until the last few years because people are used to looking at at software tech stocks as 25% organic growers. So you, you look at this company and it doesn't quite fit that. But for us, like, again, it doesn't really matter where the growth comes from as long as it's there. So if they're able to take that, that cash flow that they have and turn it into a bigger, better business over time, you're still getting cash flow growth from this company of over 20% over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Even better, we've owned it again for over 10 years and they haven't missed a quarter once, not a single time in, in 10 years. And, and that's just... Uh-huh kind of the boring, safe companies that we love to <laughs> sneaky, outsized growth. Yeah, it's interesting because you're right. I think it has gotten on the radar screen of a lot more people over the past just number of years. Um, but it sounds as though it's just still a nice secular grower for you. Secular growth with great capital allocation is how, is how we would uh, describe it. I mean, it's getting... Uh, it's getting pretty big now. I, I think it's around six or seven billion in market cap. So back to our, our conversation at the beginning, um, we can still hold it, but you know, over the next few years, it's it's one we're probably going to have to let go of. Uh, we do hold it in, in our large and all cap mandates as well, which is great. Um, I mean, it's a good problem to have. You want to buy small companies that end up becoming too big for uh, you know for the fund for the small cap fund, but um, 
you know, we still think we can hold it for a few more years and, and expect it to be a company that just keeps doing what they do well and, and the stock price mm-hmm. should follow that. Okay. Um, I want to get your take as well on another company that I don't think it's talked a lot about, but correct me if I'm wrong, but Storage Vault. Yeah. So Storage Vault is uh, the, I was going to say the largest, but I think they're actually the only public company of self-storage units in Canada. Mm. Uh, You've got a management team who owns a lot over, over 40% of it. Uh, Again, it's another one of those boring businesses that is a really good business and becomes even better in the hands of, of a consolidator. So you think about the, the model for self-storage and I don't know if you've ever used self-storage, but once you have your stuff in there, it, it kind of takes a lot for you to pull it out. So mm-hmm. you can get steady price increases, uh, three to 5% a year. Um, and, and unless you really start pushing the prices, people are incented just to renew it and, and to keep their stuff in there. It's a good, proxy for, um, or sorry, it's a good, uh, it's a good, um, beneficiary of a strong housing market. For example, people move, they need to put their things in storage, take it out. Uh, it works really well in the Canadian market from a demographics perspective, because particularly, you know, large cities and and suburban areas in, in Canada are still growing from a population basis. So it works really well from, from, uh, demographics. And again, it's another one of those companies that is still, despite how well it's done over the last few years, we, we think this, this kind of acquisition could go, story could go on for another 10 years. So it reminds me then, I guess, of public storage in the United States in the early 2000s. I remember when public storage was kind of getting talked a lot about amongst uh, money managers then. And um, it was almost a bit of a newer concept, I think, in those days, uh, in terms of putting your stuff in storage. I mean, I'm sure that's been gone, gone on for, for years and years and years. Um, but it took time for that story, I think, to actually resonate with investors, again, like 18 years ago. Um, where is Storage Vault among investor mindsets today? And, and when we think about the amount of um, units that they can build, what, what's that looking like? So you're right, and and this is what actually made it very attractive to us uh, from Canadian from a Canadian investment perspective is you already had a model that was proven to work in the U.S. and uh, Canada was just a good ten to fifteen years behind. So the market got consolidated amongst I don't know three, four, five companies in the U.S. The stocks were great for a while. It was the best performing segment of of the real estate sector in the U.S. Uh, so so you already had again a proven concept. You had a management team behind it that had already had had run success a successful self storage business uh, as a private business, and then you had their ability to use their their public uh, currency, if you will, their stock, as an acquisition vehicle because a lot of sellers of these types of um, of properties end up triggering uh, taxable gains that they don't particularly want. They want to exit the business, they want to sell, but they don't necessarily want cash. And you give them uh, units in in something like Storage Vault. They already believe in the business, so they have no problem taking that. They get a small dividend out of it. They they are able to defer the taxes, and it's an advantage uh, for Storage Vault to be able to um, to be able to be the acquirer of choice, if you will, from from these businesses that are often family owned. Uh, to your question, it's still pretty early. It's still we're still not even close to the point where the US market from a growth of acquisition perspective started um, started to become a bit more saturated. 
Uh, it's more of an acquisition story, I would say, than a build story. They're, they're, the, the properties are out there. It's still a fairly difficult um, thing to permit because it's it's low on the job scale. It takes up space. Uh, you, you have one or two employees, so most cities are not um, super willing to permit them. But there's still enough out there that you can get a great growth by acquisition story for for years. Well, that's interesting because it almost um, provides a bit of a moat. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and like it's similar to a Boyd, right? Which is an auto collision company. Like anyone can, can build a self-storage facility permitting notwithstanding, but not everyone can be successful at it. You have to know how to operate it. Um, so it is a moat from that perspective. We, we like to say like people often focus on uh, barriers to entry and we've, we've had some great businesses where the barriers to entry might be low but the barriers to success are very high. And I'd say that, that this is a great example of that. Hmm. Um, with respect to competition though, for storage vaults, I mean, where is public storage in Canada as an example? The, the U S companies are um, between non-existent and very small. None oh. of that we know of have, have created kind of a big, uh, a big market share, a big push in Canada. I still think there's enough, uh, as, as much as it's a much more mature market in the U.S., it's still not saturated to the point that, that there aren't opportunities there to the point that they would need to go into another con- uh, country, another legal entity. So for now, I think Storage Vaults in, is, in a pretty, is in a really a sweet spot for being able to acquire more of these businesses going forward. Hmm. Amazing. Um, because you brought up Boyd, I'm curious, what, what's, what's the thesis and the latest with Boyd? So Boyd is an, is a combination of, uh, you know, a long-term compounder, great capital allocator, but also it's part of, it's part of, it's a reopening beneficiary. Like who would have thought that, um, I forget the, again, the exact number, but that, that car traffic would be down 80% anytime. Like, can you imagine before COVID a situation where that would happen, right? (laughs) Cars off the road definitely impacted their business over the short term. Uh, I think it speaks to why we care so much about having high quality companies and good balance sheets, because this was a company that yes, sales and, and earnings uh, were going to be impacted, but the company was never in, in distress. Its balance sheet was, was very strong. Uh, they were able to tap the market to, to create a war chest for acquisitions. So now you've got a situation where um, again, Boyd was fine, but a lot of their small mom and pop competitors uh, not as lucky. So you have a lot of a lot of uh, companies uh, or a lot of um, repair centers that they would have been looking to buy, which is again, this is a, a growth by acquisition story largely that are now on the ropes, and it, and it really creates an opportunity for them to not only drive more business to their current locations as um, struggling franchises close, but it also provides them a, a, a an acquisition opportunity as well. Tyler, were, are they a, why are they able to do better than their competition? And, and is it perhaps in part because they might be a public company, they can raise debt, they can issue shares versus other private companies that didn't have perhaps access to that kind of capital when, when it was perhaps most needed? That's part of it. I'd say the public market currency is probably less important for them than it is uh, with storage fault, but it, it doesn't it doesn't hurt. I would say their key advantage is, uh, is, is kind of scale and regional diversity. So when you think about the um, insurance industry, it, I don't know, it, hopefully you haven't 
had an accident to know this, but if you get in an accident, you phone your insurance company and they say, uh, you can do this two ways. You can go to one of these places on our preferred list and, and minus the deductible, we'll pay for it. Like you don't even have to write a check. Uh, or you can pick your own place. You can write the check or pay by your credit card or whatever you want to do. And then and then kind of uh, claim it later with us. So I don't know about you, but I certainly would, would prefer the former. I think most people would. So um, Boyd, given that they have the scale, not just across countries and across regions um, in Canada and the US, but but they have like a cluster of them in, in certain metropolitan areas and certain states so that insurance companies, it's very easy for insurance companies to come to them and set them up. And they've got a track record. They've got a really good reputation. Uh, it's really well managed, uh, good brands. So it just makes it really easy for insurance companies to partner with them. And then you get the added benefit of when they buy something, not only are they able to manage it better just from an operational perspective, but they're also able to, to filter more business from the insurance companies there. So it's a really, really unique uh, and, and special kind of acquisition model that uh, I still think a lot of people haven't picked up on, you know, despite yeah. it being one of the best performers over the last 10 years. Wow. Interesting. Um, Tyler, we're going to kind of wrap it up in, in, a, in a few moments. There's going to be one topic we're going to cover, which are going to be the recent IPOs. Before we get to that, because that's a different animal, different beast versus the stocks that we've been talking about with the stocks we've been talking about, like an Aritzia, a Windpack, a Cargo Chat, uh, a Boyd storage vault. Um, you know, there has been some very good performance depending on your time frame. With any of those stocks right now, would you just wait before you buy, even though you've obviously described that you are a long-term holder and you would expect these stocks to continue to move higher? But for our viewers who might want to participate, and again, you're not a financial advisor, you are a big institutional money manager, so you're not advising people, but just from a valuation perspective and the run that we've seen in some stocks, Anything that perhaps you'd wait on versus buying today? I think I think I six months ago I would have said that about software stocks, and we've been we've had some very successful software companies. Um, you know, there was a Descartes, but also like a Canaxis, whose supply chain management software for big Fortune 500 companies. They had a spectacular run last year, um, and and now have been under pressure. I, th I think they're getting to the point now again. Nothing happened with the business. It's just that the market moved to other areas of the market. Like for us, that creates opportunity. So I'd say you're probably six months into a pause on a lot of these so um, uh, software names that had done very well last year. They're still viewed as expensive in a lot of cases, but people forget like a lot of these companies are growing 20, 30, 40% a year. If you wait long enough, what that means is they become 20, 30, 40% less expensive when the, when the earnings keep growing, right? So um, I'd, I would have said six months ago, uh, you know, take a pause. I think now you're getting to the point where the investor mindset has just been on other parts of the market. And I think over the next few years, the software industry and some of the software stocks that we own are, are going to surprise people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so a little bit more favorable towards the software names because they've had that pause. Yeah, for sure. And the fundamentals are great. Like they haven't changed at all. And in most cases, they've gotten better. Okay. Um, shifting focus here, I IPOs. Uh, I was reading the other day that I, I guess the investment banks are expecting a pretty busy summer earnings season, which is not normally when you'd see a lot of IPOs. We'll see if that happens or if it gets pushed into the fall. But um, you do participate in, in IPOs. You've talked about that with respect to Aritzia. Um, you seem to own a number. 
or a few of them anyway. But but what's what's your view there in terms of how you even look at the IPO uh, initial public offerings? So we are actually very skeptical in IPOs, and, and there are a number of reasons for that. For one, I mean, they're packaged to sell by definition. Uh, you have less information to make a decision on. Uh, you typically have less access to management. There, some of those things have changed over the years. There's been a, a, a concept that's been uh, more prominent this year and, and last year called testing the waters, where you get kind of a first meeting with management, uh, which is, is, again, a testing of the waters as to wh whether this is an, an IPO that might resonate with the market. Um, if it does go forward, it just gives you another another meeting with management to be able to help make your decision. So again, given those those factors, we often get less information, less of a public track record, and it's it's by definition being packaged to sell to people. Uh, our first answer is no. We, we start out going into IPOs as a no. That being said, <laughs> some of our best investments have been IPOs. Can access. Yeah. yeah, we we bought the Shopify IPO in the small cap fund. So when they're there, uh, they can provide really great opportunities. It's just that we we we're choosy. So I, I think we bought uh, three or four in the past few months. Uh, out of I don't know how many there there are now. It, it seems like my job for the last nine months has been to look at IPOs. So there have been a lot. Oh. But. Um, but I will say this, the quality that is out there right now is very high, uh, despite there being a lot of names. It's just that we tend to run fairly concentrated portfolios, even for small cap, and, and we just can't buy everything. Mm. Um, with respect to the IPOs, I mean, part of the criticism of the perhaps venture capital, private equity market over the past number of years is that they're holding on longer to capture more value before they then put it into the public markets, meaning that the people like you or me buying buying it is really buying at a premium. That's gotta be difficult if you're looking at all these IPOs in terms of really understanding the valuation, the growth and, and the prospects for the stock and making sure that quite frankly, the bankers price it right. For sure. I mean, that's they're only coming to market right now because it's advantageous for them. I mean, that's another reason to be careful of IPOs. That being said, again, you do get the opportunity to look at some of these companies that might have never come public. They might they might have they were getting they were getting venture capital money thrown at them. And uh, and there's obviously a lot of M&A in the software space. So so it's it's kind of a it's kind of you're, you're getting both sides. On one hand, you're getting an opportunity to invest in uh, great companies for the long term. Uh, mm -hmm. On the other hand, they are, you know, again, by definition, coming out right now in droves because the market has been willing to reward those types of companies. So I think that makes it, it's funny, most people would look at that as saying you need to be careful on valuation. Um, you do. But for us, it's more important to make sure you get the fundamentals right. Because if you get the fundamentals right over the long term, even if, if you buy it a little too expensive, you're probably still going to get a really great return out of it. But if you're wrong, that's where you can get into trouble when you buy something that is, is highly priced and uh, the growth story doesn't play out like you expect. Got it. And is there, are, are there any themes within the IPOs that, that you're, that play nicely into what you just said in terms of getting, getting the fundamentals right for the long term? I mean, software clearly has been a big, uh, there's been a big push on software names uh, over the last nine months, particularly this year. Uh, most of them have 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 strong um, secular, long-term, organic growth built into them. 
uh, the key again, they're all going to have it for the next two or three years or they wouldn't be coming public. We're trying to determine which ones are going to have a longer runway because if it only lasts two or three years, then again, you've got super high price stocks that, uh, that, that aren't justified by the growth any longer. So that's why when we look at it, it, we're not looking at one or two years of growth. We're looking at, can they keep up this type of growth or high growth for 10 years, five years? Because if they can, um, I, I don't want to say it doesn't matter what you pay. It always matters what you pay, mm-hmm. but, but, but it won't be as important. So uh, that, that's kind of how we tend to look at it. Uh, and, and given the fact that you're focused on small cap Canadian companies, I'm assuming that these IPOs are Canadian, which might not get a lot of airtime. Um, is there um, a nice pipeline of, of small cap IPOs coming in Canada? Well, has, think, has there been? I think there has been. Uh, uh, there have been a lot. And I wish personally, uh, as it's my job to look at them, that, that they would be spread out a little bit more. But um, I've heard that, that there are a lot of really high quality ones coming over the next few months. I would say, you know, and, and, and we're in a position to say this as well, it, it, we're a little bit fatigued by it um, mm. because there, just been ha- there have been so many of them. And, uh, and again, you can't buy all of them. So um, I think I've heard from, from people in my chair as well as people on, on the other side of the street that there is still demand, but it wouldn't surprise me if we're getting into the last leg of this before it needs to take a little bit of a pause. Okay. Any interesting names that you want to mention that you've seen come to market? Sure. So there are three kind of in the last few months or in the last round that that we've bought. The one is not a software name, actually. It's again, one of those really boring businesses that, that, that you wonder why you take a meeting and then it turns out to be a great opportunity. (laughs) And that's, I mean, when I was just as an anecdote, when I was first pitched Boyd 10 years ago, I was like, why would anyone want to own one auto collision repair company, let alone dozens of them, but it, it turned out to be a great business. So mm-hmm. uh, in this, in this, uh, in that vein would be Neighborly. So Neighborly is a collection of small, um, uh, non-branded, if you will, or non-big branded pharmacies, uh, mostly in small towns and suburbs where they're either the only game in town or one of the only games in town. Or, um, or attached to doctor's offices. So people go in, or clinics, if you will. They go in, they get their diagnosis, they get their prescription written, and they just grab it on the way out, uh, out the door. So you've got fairly uh, non-competitive types of pharmacies. Um, they, they focus less on, on selling snacks and food and, and kind of other, other things like that, that the big shoppers, drug marts, and Rexall would. So again, pretty good competitive space. Uh, lots of cash flow really good cash flow businesses and again uh very fragmented so it's an opportunity for a company like neighborly uh they have professional management long careers at at shoppers drug mart for example know how to operate them uh, are good at taking the money and and it's a little bit like a void and then some of the other names we've talked about where you take cash flow and you kind of have an opportunity to buy these uh these pharmacies at, at fairly good prices and again it's it starts off so fragmented that you can get really good growth rates. Like we're, we're looking at, at 15 to 20% plus for a decade. Wow. Um, just to kind of pick up on that, it, it's interesting to think about a neighborly versus a shopper's drug mart, which seems like obviously such a behemoth. How can they possibly coexist? But it reminds me of Sally Beauty or Alberto Culver, which owns Sally Beauty. A deal when I was at Goldman, we did, you know, back in like, I think it's 2004, 2005. 
And in speaking with the CEO, you know, he kind of described the company as saying that we're just under the radar screen of those huge consumer staples companies and that they can coexist in their own almost parallels. I'm paraphrasing, but, but that was yeah. my takeaway. Is that, is that kind of almost how you think of a neighborly? Because I, I look at it and go, wow, are you sure they can kind of exist with, with shoppers? Well, that it's, it is similar. So when you think about, um, I'm trying to think of a small town and whether it's cottage country. And, and by the way, a lot of these small towns have, 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 uh, very strong demographics that align with pharmacies, right? Like the, 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 um, Toronto's and Vancouver's and Montreal's kind of dominated, uh, the landscape for, for young people, young talent, where people set up families, you know, close to places where they'd want to work. Uh, these smaller towns have have older demographics, meaning more demand for for drugs and pharmaceuticals, and it becomes like a small enough. They're small enough towns, a lot of them, that it's it's not worth it for a shoppers to go in and, and set up. And they're again, they're doing very different things. Shoppers Drug Mart clearly sells lots of pharmaceuticals, but it's almost like a smaller convenience store or grocery store now as well. So the, mm-hmm. the product mix is a little bit different. Um, you know, people also don't realize that when you live in a, in smaller towns, you end up having a strong, uh, you know, rapport with, with your local pharmacist. So shoppers drug mart could open up right beside and it may not matter. So it's kind of like not big enough for them to get in. It's not really worth the time to try and fight from that much of a, from that competitive of a landscape. And, uh, you know, it sets up a really, really neat scenario for them. Interesting. I'm going to take a look. What is the ticker? I'll look it up. But what's the ticker while we're at it? Well, it's fairly new. I think it's N-B-L-Y. Okay. We'll look. We'll look. Um, Tyler, That this has been amazing. I, I think that, you know, hearing how you think about investing in, and looking at a company in different fundamentals, different sectors, different opportunities is, is really helpful um, to viewers. And, and, you know, people really, obviously, through this pandemic, we know that there's that retail investor out there. Uh, who's trying to learn more. So thank you so much for your time. Happy to do it. Thanks. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. It was nice catching up. Thank you. And um, viewers can uh, own your fund as well. BMO Small Cap. Yeah, BMO Canadian Small Cap Equity Fund. Okay. Well, now they know. Even more so. (laughs) So, uh, Tyler, thanks again. And we'll do it again. Thank you. Sure. Thanks very much, Catherine.